So we are uh, going to continue with our look at the historical approaches to hermeneutics. We looked at the first one last week, which was the Jewish method of interpretation. Um, just for review, for context. Initially, it started out okay. We had the example in Nehemiah chapter 8 where they read the law and the, the scribes, the Levites, interpreted it from Hebrew into Aramaic so that people could understand what they were talking about. So that was pretty good. I mean, it was an honest um, sticking to the text. Um, Later on, when the rabbis came along, they kind of shifted to an allegorical method. And allegories are kind of symbolic. Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory where elements in the story represent different aspects of humanity. So it's just symbolic. So the rabbis began doing that. I think it was probably, if I remember correctly, around the time of the Babylonian captivity um, because Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple in Jerusalem and took the people captive, so there was no way for them to continue the temple services so the priests were kind of out of it. <laughs> They're almost out of a job. Except the priests were really the ones who governed all of society for the Jews. But the teachers, the rabbis, came along and they eventually became the ones who were in charge of the teaching instead of the priests. And they eventually got into this uh, allegorical method. Yeah, yeah, and of course, the, the further you go, the 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 more things fall apart. <laughs> so, yeah. so they would be symbolic, like as we saw last time. They would say that that Israel is the Messiah. The Messiah is not an individual, but it refers to Israel as a nation. You can't really support that from Scripture, but that's the way they understood the Messiah. So we get into the uh, allegorical method itself. Um, This is, it could start out okay with exegesis bringing the the point of the text out, but you change the allegory when you start to make the application, the understanding of it. Um, It's an added interpretation, not exactly what the text says. This was originated by the Greeks and adopted by the Jews. Um, The Golden Age of Greece was 500 B.C. to 300 B.C., a couple hundred years there. And you've got all your philosophers, you've got Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and, you know, all of the greats there. And it's amazing that Greece at that time was fragmented. It wasn't a unified nation. It was a bunch of city-states, you know, big cities that had their own territory and their own governments and stuff. And uh, But they, Athens was the primary one, and they kind of took over <laughs> and set the rules for everybody else. But they, pr- they produced all the art and the architecture and the literature and all of that stuff. So you have the Golden Age, also called the Classical Age of Greece. 
Um, so the Jews came back from Babylon in the um, later part of the 400s. Um, and so Greece was just coming into prominence at the same time. And then Philip of Macedon, Macedonia is up there north of Greece. Can't see it well. It's up there at the top. <laughs> top left yeah, top left corner. Greece is at the bottom there. You see those three little fingers hanging down. That's part of Greece. And above that is Macedon, where you have Philippi and Thessalonica and all those places where Paul preached and was basically run out of town. And so he went south down to Athens and then over to Corinth. But Philip of Macedon, Macedonia at the time was a podunk little place, <laughs> just out in the sticks. Well, Philip kind of built it up. He built up the army, he, he improved the economy and the government and all that stuff and made it into a, a pretty good power. In fact, he kind of set the stage for Alexander, his son, to uh, finally conquer the Persians. <laughs> Yeah, he was assassinated. He was like 47. He, uh, he, he came to the throne when he was 23, when his father died, the throne of Macedon. So he did a lot in like 20 years. He was assassinated in 436, 436. No, I'm sorry, 336. And then Alexander, his son, took over. He was 20 when he took over. <laughs> and and uh, basically conquered the world by the time he was 33. And then he was killed in battle. So uh, just as Greece, when, when Alexander started taking things over, he marched down into Israel. And he didn't really conquer Israel because Israel didn't put up a fight. By this time, they weren't a power. <laughs> they had no army or anything like that. So he just kind of, so they were influenced by Greek culture. Alexander, when he went all over the world, took the Greek culture and language and all of that stuff with him. And so the world was Hellenized. Hellas is the Greek word for Greece. So Hellenistic means Greek. Okay. In Acts chapter 7, there's a complaint in the church that the Hellenistic widows were being neglected. <laughs> the official Jewish widows, you know, from Jerusalem or Israel were being taken care of, but those Jewish widows who had grown up in the Greek part of the world were now in Jerusalem, they were being neglected. Sort of a little bit of discrimination there. Anyway, so the world was Hellenized, and so was Israel. And so they adopted this allegorical form of, of interpretation from the Greeks. By the way, what is purple and conquered the world? Alexander the Great. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. No, that's junior high stuff. Anyway. Um the problem here is that the allegorical method bypasses the historical grammatical meaning of a text 
and it provides a current meaning. So instead of saying this is what the text says and this is what it means, you say this is what it says and it means this over here. <laughs> Not consistent with what the text says. And the only example I can come up with that isn't really an example but gives you ideas, the Cotton Patch Gospel. I don't know if you're aware of that. It's written in the, the mid-1960s by this New Testament scholar who was also a preacher in Georgia. And he found that his congregation, his people, were not getting the point. He's standing there teaching the Word every Sunday, and they're, it's just going over the hairs, and they're not getting it. He thought, what is the problem here? This is God's Word. <laughs> Why are they not getting this? And so he just observed, and he talked to some people, and he finally figured it out. They could not relate to the place names and the people names and the cultural references in the Bible. So he's talking about Abraham and Jerusalem and the people are like, who? <laughs> what, what is that? So he rewrote the Bible. It's not a translation, it's a paraphrase of the King James and put it into language that his congregation would understand. So instead of talking about Jerusalem, he would substitute Atlanta. They knew about Atlanta. <laughs> okay. And he gave common names to the people in the Bible instead of, you know, Jeconiah and all of those names. You know, he, he would say, well, now Billy Bob went up to Atlanta. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's a story. You know, it, it's, the, it's what the Bible says. He just put it into terms, yeah, terms that they could understand, okay? And he called it the Cotton Patch Gospel because it's, you know, from the South. <clears throat> that's sort of allegorical, okay? He's taking what the Bible says and putting it into a current cultural context. Now, what he was doing is not really allegorizing, but it's the same kind of idea. <clears throat> so, it's, it's just kind of making up a meaning and applying it as you want to. It's very subjective, you can make any text mean whatever you want because you're putting it in your own current situation. Isn't that almost impossible as modern-day readers not to do? <laughs> well, in our, in our current cultural context, <laughs> because people are making up their own reality all the time. Yeah. It's, there's a balance there, especially for a teacher or a preacher, you want to make it relevant to the people, what they're going through now, but you got to stay faithful to what the text says. We run into this with the Constitution these days. People are taking what the Constitution says, and instead of interpreting it in, in the context in which it was written, they're giving new meanings to all of those things. And that's why there's a lot of chaos going on because of that. Yeah, I'm sure you'll get to this because a challenge for us as interpreters to understand what um, what the cultural you know understand the cultural background and for instance when slavery is being referred to we have a we have a way of um, automatically thinking of slavery here in the US um, but slavery back then was very different from slavery how it's practiced here in the US you know or, or wine we see wine being referenced but wine back then was very different than wine today and and so a lot of this is just a challenge for us to um, learn as much as we can about the cultural background, and, and that will help you to become more sensitive to, uh, to, to when you're interpreting, to, to see that 
this does not mean what we would normally think it means by today's standards. And then it's simply just educating ourselves more and more on the, the, the biblical background. Yeah. Tricky. <clears throat> so in this method, your whatever allegorical meaning you come up with becomes your truth. <laughs> and so anything that doesn't agree with your truth cannot be true. You know, we have that today in relativism. You know, that's my truth and that's your truth and, and you can't say anything bad about my truth because it's mine and not yours. And try telling that to the policeman when he pulls you over and he says, you were doing 65 and a 40 mile. An well, that's your truth, not mine. Yeah. <laughs> there is objective reality. <laughs> so eventually, one, one begins to get the same meaning from any scripture he looks at. Okay, because that's the way he's trained his brain to read things. He's got his truth and he's looking for truth or proof from scripture and this does sometimes result from trying to find scriptural support for an idea you know, a teacher or a preacher comes up with an idea and they think that that's a great idea I gotta find some scripture to back that up and they look in the Bible and they can't find any so they say well if you look at this scripture this way <laughs> it will support that mm -hmm. so they kinda of come up with a, an allegorical meaning so we have problems with allegories. It's it's not the real object of meaning. You know, it's whatever meaning you come up with. <clears throat> then there's a literal method of interpretation. Now you have to be careful. The word literal can be taken in a couple of ways, good and bad. And if somebody asks you, do you take the Bible literally, you have to ask them, what do you mean by literally? <laughs> because there are two meanings. In the good sense, literal means what the Bible says it says, and it means what it says. And accounting for the type of literature, the historical context, all of these things we're going to be talking about with hermeneutics. Um, taking all those things into consideration, once you get the meaning, you take that as the meaning. That's a good sense of literal. The bad sense is you focus on just the words of scripture this is the opposite of the allegorical method which you make up whatever meaning you want this sticks to the words of scripture but the problem is that's all they look at is the words um, it's interpreted according to the letter the letter of the law <coughs> excuse me <coughs> it's based on what the words say not on what the passage means. We've talked about this before uh, in several of the Psalms that depicts God as protecting his children, it says, under his wings. Well, literally, if you want to take it literally, God has wings. <laughs> that would be a literal interpretation of those passages in the Psalms. Um, we know that's not true. This is another principle of hermeneutics, which we'll get to later. You let the clear passages of Scripture clarify the ones that are not so clear. Uh, the unambiguous, um, what's the word, unequivocal statements. We know from John 4, God is a spirit. So he's not going to have wings. Um, so the, the clear statement clarifies those misunderstandings. But the people who take 
the literal approach, say, no, it says he has wings, so God has wings. That's a problem. It doesn't take literature into consideration. This is a pharisaical method. The Pharisees use this method, and Jesus condemned them for it. Uh, we want to take some time to look at these passages. So let's go to Matthew 12, if you have your Bible there. We have a couple of situations here where Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees regarding uh, the Sabbath. Um, the Pharisees, again, were taking the law very literally, and they had their list of uh, do's and don'ts. And they, they reduced everything to whether or not you follow the list. And Jesus, throughout the Gospels, was trying to tell people, that's not what it's about. <laughs> the, 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 the law that God established with Moses was not about do's and don'ts. There was a lot of that in there, but those were all for a reason. But the core of the, of the law was a, a relating to God. So, chapter 12 of Matthew, starting with verse 1, says, at that time Jesus went on the Sabbath through the grain fields and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. This was allowed in the law. The law said the farmers had to let the poor people, you know, if they were hungry, go get some food. <laughs> you couldn't chase them out. And when you harvested, you didn't harvest the edges in the corners. You left that for the poor people. So they weren't breaking the law here. They weren't stealing but it was on the Sabbath, and verse 2 says, But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Behold, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. <clears throat> they were working. They were harvesting. And the law says, On the seventh day you will do no work. You, know, you can work six days, and on the Sabbath you have to rest. So the act of reaching out and pulling a handful of grain, wheat or whatever it was, that was ripe and they you know, pop it in their mouth. They're harvesting. You can't do that. Jesus explains what, you know, he gives a couple of examples. David went into the, to the tabernacle and took the showbread because he was hungry and his men were hungry. And uh, that really was for the priests to eat, not anybody else. It wasn't lawful, he says in verse 4, for him to eat it, nor for those with him but for the priests alone. But he didn't get in trouble for it. It was, it was perfectly fine. The bread is to feed the hungry, <laughs> and he and his men were hungry. So the priests could say, well, yeah, you can have it if you want. Verse 5, have you not read in the law that on the, on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? The priests had duties to perform on the Sabbath. They were working on the Sabbath. But it wasn't breaking the Sabbath because it was allowed for. <clears throat> um, the issue about Sabbath breaking from the, the um, Pharisees' point of view, again, they had their strict rules, any exertion of energy was work. You couldn't pick up a stick. 
on the Sabbath. <laughs> that was work. When Jesus healed a blind man and told him to go wash in the pool there, he got in trouble because he did that on the Sabbath. Because that's work. You can't do that. In a, in a hotel in Jerusalem many years ago, uh, the, the elevator ran up and down all day long because you, you were not allowed to <laughs> They stopped at every floor, yeah. open up, because you were not allowed to <laughs> Right. Oh, the kids were not Yeah. But, but they, they were even hypocritical because they would pull their own animals if they felt like yeah. they did. Well, that's what he talks. He tells them about that. Right, but, but they won't allow a man to be healed. Right, right. So you have compassion on your animals, but you won't let me have compassion on a human being who, who is worth more than an animal. Yeah, so they were hypocritical. But if you go back to the law, the point was not the exertion of energy, but gainful employment. God said, you can work for yourselves six days. You can provide for yourselves six days. On the seventh day, you're not going to be distracted by providing for yourself. You're going to let God provide for you and worship God on that day. In the Lord's Prayer, part of it says, give us this day our daily bread. At that time, work was all day labor. You worked a day and were paid for that labor. When God gave them manna in the wilderness, they had to go out in the morning and, and harvest, if you want to call it that, just enough for that day. If, if they tried to get more, it spoiled and they didn't like that. But on the sixth day, God provided twice as much so they wouldn't have to go out there and uh, provide for themselves on the seventh day. They would have food to eat. They would depend on God's provision. So, exertion of energy isn't the point. The point is gainful employment. You don't work to support yourself on the seventh day. You trust God on the seventh day. <clears throat> Hope. And even the first example that he gives about the showbread, mm-hmm. that's not even a Sabbath example. Right. <clears throat> so basically he's, he's showing that, um, that, that the law is not meant to oppress men. Right. You know, we have needs, and God didn't make laws in order to oppress you. Your, your needs, he still cares about your needs. Right, right. The whole point of the law, again, is that contact with God. And uh, as Jesus says elsewhere, well, actually in, in uh, Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, God knows what you need. You know, he'll take care of you if you just trust him to do that. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So they, they were not happy with it, what he was doing on the Sabbath. They said he was breaking the Sabbath when he really wasn't. He was breaking their rules. And the, the Pharisees had created 600 and some additional commandments so they wouldn't break any of the ten. You know, you have the ten commandments, and they said, well, in order to prevent us from breaking any of these, we'll put some more commandments outside of those <laughs> related but outside of those so uh, we'll be sure not to break the tent so they ended up building fences <laughs> 600 and some additional commandments and they paid more attention to those than they did to the law and you had to strictly obey those commandments um, 
And that's what we have in, in Matthew, or excuse me, Mark chapter 7, where, uh, again, the disciples were eating and they hadn't, they hadn't uh, washed their hands properly. And so the Pharisees are complaining to Jesus, why don't your disciples wash their hands before they eat? And it wasn't about getting the dirt off their hands. It was about the ceremony. They had a particular way of washing their hands. They had to wash their hands a certain way. They had to let the water run down their forearms a certain way <laughs> in order to be ceremonially clean before they ate. And the disciples weren't doing that. Um, so they have that complaint in, in Mark chapter 7 there. Um, some of the disciples, verse 2, were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. And then we have a parenthesis in verses 3 and 4 talking about all these superficial little rules that the Pharisees had created. And they were upset because the disciples weren't following those rules. So verse 5, they, they complained to Jesus, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? And they answered the question themselves. It's the tradition of the elders that they're worried about, not the law. They hadn't broken the law. And so Jesus explains that in, uh, in his response there. Verse 6, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men. And so he goes on to give another example of that. Children are supposed to take care of their parents, their elderly parents, but the, the Pharisees arranged it so that the people could, at least on the books, say that everything I own belongs to God, so I can't give anything to my parents <laughs> because it belongs to God. But that didn't keep them from using it for themselves. <clears throat> so the Pharisees were, were literalists. They went by the letter of the law, and they, but they misunderstood the whole point of the law. <clears throat> and they even went to the letter of their own rules rather than God's law itself. And they're condemned for that. So that's the literal view of Scripture, taking it word for word, you know, it, interpreting it to mean exactly what it says word for word, not accounting for things like figurative language or the fact that this is prophecy or this is wisdom literature, you know, taking things like that into consideration. We need a screen back there. <laughs> <clears throat> so then the next method is the devotional method. Um, this one's funny in a tragic sort of way. This focuses on devotional thoughts, not interpretation. This focuses more on application rather than understanding what Scripture says. If they, they want to know, what are you going to do with this? How are you going to apply it to your life? And this is sort of a combination 
Well, this is, you know, application over exegesis. This is really a combination of both the uh, literal and the allegorical methods. It's literal because they focus on the words and not the meaning of the text, and it's allegorical because they make up their own meaning. So it's sort of a combination of the two. We have an example here, and we're going to go through this. Hopefully we'll have time. Uh, The emphasis is on the spiritual life, not the meaning of the text. Okay, So they want to help you improve your spiritual life, and so they give you these devotional thoughts. And they use Scripture as a basis for the devotional thought. Unfortunately, they're not careful (laughs) about whether or not that Scripture really does support that thought. And I put up there as an example... These little devotionals are daily bread. Do you use these things? Yeah, I use them. It's more frustrating than helpful. (laughs) (laughs) Well, actually, yeah, I use these, but I don't get a lot of spiritual food out of it. What it is, is an opportunity for me to practice hermeneutics. (laughs) Because, I'm telling you, the vast majority of these little things are way off base. <laughs> the thoughts that they, that they, the devotional thoughts that they give you are good thoughts. They're helpful. They're, you know, they can be edifying. But the scriptures that they give you as a foundation for those thoughts don't match. The, the scripture's talking about something entirely different. Time after time after time. I have a couple of years' worth of these things in a box somewhere with all my notes in the margin. <laughs> because, it, it, you know, it's frustrating on the one hand. On the other hand, as I said, it's a good, you know, mental exercise. I also get to practice or keep my English skills sharp because nobody edits these things. <laughs> Punctuation problems, word choice, <laughs> grammar is just terrible. So... Uh, one from this year, June 17th, uh, we're going to look at this passage just to, to practice some hermeneutics here to show how they do this and why the devotional method is tricky. you got to be very careful. Um, so let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. They highlight verse 11. Now, to their credit, to their credit, they say to read verses 1 through 11. So they give you context, but they focus on verse 10. Oops, second Corinthians here. <clears throat> Can't turn these stupid pages. It's, it's amazing. I suppose it's, it's like compartmentalization, you're familiar with that, where people can hold opposite ideas at the same time and they don't see the contradiction because they compartmentalize. In one part of their brain, they believe this idea. In another part of their brain, they believe a, a conflicting idea, but they don't see the conflict because they never put them together. <laughs> they compartmentalize. This idea is over here, this idea is over here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's more of an oxymoron, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
So they give you the context. They didn't read the context. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, but we're going to read the context, all right? But let me give you the, the point they make. And, uh, sorry, they focus on verse 11, not verse 10, but verse 10 sets up verse 11, so you have to do them both. Um, and they, they equate it with the, the point of the devotional is integrity. They want you to learn to have integrity. And let's, let's read verse 11, start with, with the point there. Uh, Paul is talking to the Corinthians. He said, let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when absent, such persons are we are also in deed when present. And the point of the devotional is, you need to be the same person when you're with people that you are when you're by yourself. You don't want to be duplicitous. You don't want to put on a, a false front when you talk to people and be somebody completely different when you're by yourself. Now, that's a good point. <laughs> we all need that. But is that what Paul's talking about? Hmm. <laughs> we'll see. So, let's do some hermeneutics. What is the point of 2 Corinthians, the whole book of 2 Corinthians? Start with a big context. Paul's talking about his apostleship, and he talks about it in various ways from various angles. And a big part of it is defending his authority as an apostle, especially in chapters 10, 11, and 12. <clears throat> so that's what he's doing here. He's, he's defending himself against people who had come to Corinth and were telling the Corinthians that he wasn't really an apostle. He didn't have all this authority. That he's doing this, and I'm kind of summarizing what it says here. We'll see it as we go through. He's just doing this for his own benefit. He's using you for his own purposes. Uh, and some of the Corinthians were starting to believe that. And so Paul is addressing this issue. He had written the first book of Corinthians, our first, actually Paul probably wrote about four letters. We have the second one, which is our first Corinthians, and the fourth one, which is our second Corinthians. Um, so the first letter he wrote to correct problems in the church, and if you read First Corinthians, he lets them have it. He doesn't pull any punches. You know, you're doing this, you shouldn't do that, you got to you know, straighten this out. <clears throat> so here, these people were saying, well, let's go back to verse 10. They say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible. <clears throat> so he shouts a lot in his letters, but when he's with you, he's this Casper Milktoast guy <laughs> who doesn't have any backbone. Okay. That was their accusation against him. He doesn't have any authority. If he did, he would be just as forceful in, pre in your presence as he is in his letters. <clears throat> So he addresses this, and we're, gonna, we're not going to uh, do a complete job of exegesis on this passage because we don't have time, but he starts out in verse 10, now starting a new idea here, in chapter, chapters uh, 8 and 9 he talked about a, their collecting an offering for the saints in Jerusalem, he says, I'm going to be there in a while, and and I want you to have that ready so I don't have to hassle with it when I get there. I can just pick it up from you and take it to Jerusalem. 
So now, his new subject here, now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold towards you when absent. So he is kind of starting by acknowledging what these, what his enemies are saying about him. You know, he explains it again as we already read in verses 10 and 11. <clears throat> so he's kind of setting the stage at the beginning of the chapter. And notice, why is he meek and mild in their presence? He's following Christ's example. Okay. Now, there were times, of course, when Christ was not that meek <laughs> and not that gentle, but there were reasons for it. But overall, he was not a troublemaker. Okay. He approached people with compassion for their benefit. So Paul is saying, I'm following Christ's example of how to relate to people. That's why I behave the way I do when I'm, when I'm with you. Uh, meekness is kind of an attitude. That's what you are inside, and gentleness is how you deal with people. That's kind of an outgrowth of the meekness. So here's his request regarding these enemies. He says, I ask that when I am present, I may not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. That is, they're saying I'm doing this for my own benefit, okay, in my own strength. <clears throat> so he says, I really don't want to be bold when I'm with you. <laughs> I want to relate to you on a friendly basis. I don't want to come there and bash you over the head with this stuff. And that's partly why he was bold in his letters, so that the, by the time he got there, they would have straightened these things out so he wouldn't have to address them when he got there. So don't make me. <laughs> don't make me come back there. <laughs> so, you know, verse 3, he clarifies, for though we walk in the flesh, that is, I'm a human, you know, I, I walk, I'm a human being like everybody else, Walk here has the idea of the pattern of life. Though I walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. This is I'm not doing this in my own strength. And he goes on to explain he's using God's weapons, spiritual weapons, as he says in Ephesians. The, you know, the armor of God is spiritual against spiritual enemies. Verse 4, he says it right there. For the weapons of our warf warfare are not of the flesh. These are not human weapons. This is not human energy. But divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Uh, a lot of the stuff he says here are, are oblique references to statements God made in the Old Testament about uh, tearing down the fortresses of the enemies and stuff like that. So they would be familiar with these things. So he is using divine weapons. He's not doing this for his own purposes. He's not doing this in his own strength. This is the source of his authority. That is God's power behind him. And he says in verse 5, we are destroying speculations or reasonings is another word for that and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. So when he presents the truth to the people, forcefully in his letters, but calmly when he's with them, <clears throat> he, 
he is combating those people who would be contradicting him. Raised up lofty thing, high ideas they had, basically they're arrogant. Raised up against the knowledge of God. Knowledge of God, there is an objective genitive. It's what you know about God, your understanding of God. These people are telling you something different. (laughs) They're trying to pervert what you know about God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. There is another verse that's often taken out of context and misapplied. How have you heard that part misapplied, taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ? Most of the time, people understand that to relate to your thought life. You are taking your thoughts captive and, and forcing them to be obedient <laughs> to Christ, you know. So when you're tempted to sin, you capture that thought and bring it into obedience. That's not what he's talking about. The thoughts he's talking about here are these accusations of the people who are talking against him. We are going to take captive every thought to the obedience of Christ. We are going to compare it to what Christ has said. And we're going to see who's telling the truth. Did you say that's discernment? Uh, could be, yeah. He's, he's, in a sense, as we'll see here in a minute, he's trying to help the Corinthians with their discernment of, you know, what's right and what's wrong, especially when it comes to his apostleship. And we are ready, he says in verse 6, to punish all disobedience. So you people think I'm meek and mild when I'm with you, well, you wait. <laughs> if you don't get this thing straightened out before I get there, you know, you'll see some authority. We are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. So he's giving the Corinthians kind of a fair warning. I'm telling you what's what here. So you better stop believing these people who are telling you the lies and get in line with the truth. Because if you don't, when I get there and straighten out these liars, and if you're taking their side, I'm going to have to straighten you out too. And I don't want to do that. So he's giving them an opportunity to straighten up before he gets there. And he, he explains why they're trend, tending to drift toward this, these false statements. Verse 7, you are looking at things as they are outwardly. This was a problem with the Corinthians, if you go back and read 1 Corinthians. All through the book, they were looking things at things superficially. For example, spiritual gifts. They favored the more showy of the gifts, the healing and the prophecy and the speaking in tongues, the dramatic things, you know, impressive things. And he straightened them out on that. In 1 Corinthians, now he's reminding them You're looking at what these false guys say, and it sounds impressive. But you've got to look at at their motives. He says, if anyone, and he's talking about his enemies here, if anyone is confident in himself that he is Christ, let him consider this again within himself, think about this, that just as he is Christ, so also are we. And Paul is using the third person plural here, the we, in reference to himself. Perhaps also to the apostles, he starts the book using the we as a reference to all the apostles, uh, defending his apostleship. So it's possible here, but 
since he is dealing with the uh, Corinthians himself, he's probably referring to himself. So he's saying they, they don't have any, anything on me when it comes to being Christ's disciple. And he goes on, For even if I should boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up, not for destroying you, I shall not be put to shame. So even if I go on and tell you more about my apostleship and my discipleship of Christ and all of that stuff, he said, <clears throat> you'll find that it's true. I'm not going to be put to shame. It's not going to turn out to be false. That word put to shame is one word in Greek. It's also translated elsewhere as being disappointed. And the ideas of being ashamed and being disappointed are two sides of the same coin. The idea is you put your trust in something. And everybody knows you're trusting that thing. And then it turns out to be untrustworthy. How are you going to feel? <laughs> you're going to be disappointed because your trust was not fulfilled. And that's going to lead to embarrassment, <laughs> the, the shame part of it. Okay. <clears throat> so he says, when I tell you about my apostleship, I'm not going to be put to shame. It's going to be, you're going to see it's true. Okay. It's not false. The implication is what they're saying is false. Uh, verse 9, For I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters. I'm not trying to scare you. When I am forceful in my letters, it's not to scare you. It's to build you up. Um, as he just said in, in, in verse 8, for building you up and not for destroying you. So I'm not trying to scare you in my letters. I'm trying to build you up. I'm giving you advice. I'm giving you direction. It's for your benefit. Then we get to the verses in question here. For they, that is the people speaking against him, they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible. Then he answers them, verse 11, Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when absent such persons we are also indeed when present. So, you say that my letters are harsh and forceful. Well, they are. Okay, I'm the same person when I'm with you. I have the same authority. <laughs> I just present it differently. As he said, I don't want to be forceful when I'm in your presence. Verse 12. We're running out of time here, so we'll kind of summarize uh, the rest of this. Uh, he goes on, it's a, it gets to be a tongue twister here. <laughs> Even in the, in the uh, New American Standard, it's kind of a tongue twister. He talks about his sphere of influence and his authority. He's basing his authority on the job God gave him to do, which was to go all the way to Corinth. And he said, nobody else has gotten here yet. I'm the first one to come and teach you. And the fact that I am doing God's will under his authority is proved by the fact that I've come this far and have had, have had a successful ministry. <clears throat> um, the others could not say that. And he doesn't want to boast in anybody else's work. He wants to present the gospel where no one else has presented it. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
and he hopes that, verse 16, he will be enlarged by them, that is, he wants them to support him in his further ministry so he can um, expand his ministry. And tradition says that he got all the way to Spain. Verse 17, he who boasts, let him boast in the Lord. These false, I keep wanting to say false teachers, not false teachers, <laughs> they're Paul's enemies speaking against his authority. He told them, we skipped the parts this in verses uh, 13, 14, um, etc. Uh, where they compare themselves by themselves or with themselves. And he says they have no understanding. I mean, it's a circular argument. If you want to prove you're right, you don't want to just say, well, I'm right because I'm right. You know, Paul says it's, it's the one that God approves who is really approved. If you approve yourself, that's, that's saying nothing. It's kind of like evolution. Uh, fortunately, not many people believe at least in Darwinian evolution anymore. They believe in other forms. <clears throat> but evolutionists look at all of the things they find in the world and they read them uh, through the evolutionary lens. They begin by assuming that evolution is correct. And then any evidence they find, they read it as though it fits the evolutionary program. And when they develop tests to test things, they program the tests according to their evolutionary presuppositions. And so they find something and compare it to the test and say, see, it fits evolution. <laughs> well, what do you expect? You program the test to find what you were looking for. And so you found what you were looking for. Same thing here. These people who are speaking against Paul don't have any authority. It's a circle. They're, they're approving of themselves. And Paul says, I'm not going to do that. God is my witness. God is the one who approves me. Verse 18, he wraps it up. For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. So he has God's commendation, God's authority, based on what he has accomplished in his ministry. The people who have been speaking against him can't say that. They have no such record to fall back on. You could say that everything they say is just hearsay. It's, it's not backed up by evidence. His authority is backed up by evidence. So, back to the point. The devotional thought here in verse 11 is to have integrity, to be the same person you are with people as you are when you're not with people. Is that what Paul's talking about? <laughs> no, it has nothing to do with that. Now, again, the point of integrity is good. The devotional thought you know, have some integrity so you approach people on an honest level and you're not pretending to be somebody you're not. That's a good thing. But it doesn't come from Second Corinthians chapter 10. It has nothing to do with it. So they are looking at the words. And they are seeing an idea in the words. So it's a combination of the literal and the allegorical. They're applying words here. And notice it's out of context. <laughs> They, they do say, read the first 11 verses, but they don't pay attention to it. They still look only at verse 11. So, these things can be helpful, <laughs> but be careful. <clears throat> Any questions about any of that? <clears throat> Excuse me. So, some cautions. <laughs> okay. 
We've already talked about cautions with these things. Uh, the devotional ideas have to be based on the meaning of the text. You want an accurate application. If all you do is apply the words, you're not doing the job. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20-21, no prophecy is of any private or personal interpretation. The Holy Spirit wrote it. The people who wrote the text were moved by the Spirit. They wrote what the Spirit told them to write. You can't come along all on your own, in your own head, figure out what it means. Okay? You can't apply your own meaning. It doesn't work that way. You have to go through the hermeneutical process. Uh, this method is susceptible, again, to allegory, as we've already seen, and excessive typology. Uh, a type is a picture of foreshadowing of something. For example, Isaac, when he was going to be offered, uh, he was uh, you know, in his 20s by then, and he could have taken Abraham very easily. <laughs> but Abraham's tying him up you know, and going to sacrifice him, and he goes along with it. And so people see him as a type of Christ being the willing sacrifice. Okay. Now, there are differences, of course, because Isaac didn't die. He was rescued. Okay. But uh, <clears throat> he was the willing, willing to be a sacrifice. But with this method, you can find types everywhere, which aren't really types. They're not really foreshadowings of anything. And, and that's very common with the Old Testament. Yeah. Um, so I, I, a very well-known preacher talked about David and Goliath and, and David being a picture of Jesus Christ and Goliath being death yeah. and Jesus <laughs> just conquering death and all that. And I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a creative um, uh, analogy, but that's not what the Bible says. It never makes that right. right. So this, again, is a, when they're trying to get support for an idea <laughs> and they kind of twist things to make it fit what they want. Do you know how many Christian t-shirts you have to throw out? <laughs> well, why don't you start making a list? <laughs> I can see this is really, uh, for lack of a better word, this would be really offensive even to you know devote believers. Yeah. I've heard this this text before in the time of Simon. Mm -hmm. you know, I never thought of it. Mm -hmm. This is yeah. <laughs> yeah, that would be a struggle. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to say something, but I have to be careful. <laughs> I want to say this. I want to say that today we have a very lazy Christianity, you know, generally. People don't think. You know, they live by habit. You know, people say mankind is a creature of habit, and we are. Unfortunately, people become habitual in their spirituality, which of course isn't real spirituality. They don't want to be careful. You know? They don't want to put out the mental energy that it takes to do all of this. They'd rather just sail along with what they've heard all their lives. If anybody questions it, they don't want to deal with that. It hurts. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, this can also lead to application without understanding because, again, you're applying the words of the text without the meaning behind the words. And you don't want to do that because it's the meaning that counts. That's what it's all about. The text means something. You have to apply the meaning. You can't apply just the words. 
The history of the use of this method uh, is used by the Puritans, the Quakers, Jonathan Edwards, John Wesley, Arminians in general, okay, use this method of, of interpretation. Uh, we hold up some of the uh, Puritans as, as foundational theologians. Uh, Jonathan Edwards is one, who's the other guy? His name keeps coming in and out of my head. America. Or uh, what's his name? Owen. John Owens? John Owens. Yeah, John yeah, he wasn't in America. Was he? Yeah. thought he was one of the American Puritans. Anyway, same thing. So, again, we look at those people for their theological input and think, wow, they're deep thinkers. But when it comes to interpreting, you got to be careful <laughs> because, you know, they tend to go with this kind of interpretive method. So you always have to be looking over your shoulder. It's not a comfortable thing, but it's going to be necessary. And that brings us to the next one, which we don't have time for, which is good because it's going to take forever. <laughs> of all the, of all of these methods of interpretation, this is the first one that was designed to be an attack on the reliability of Scripture. All of the other methods of interpretation were just ways people saw Scripture. This was intended to disprove Scripture. Okay. So you need to be aware of this one. <laughs> and it has many expressions these days. And we'll talk about the history of it, how it developed, and how it's applied. And Is that the German rationalists? Yeah, the, the higher criticism. Higher criticism. Yeah. It starts there. Okay, it starts there. Um, so we'll we'll take off there next week. So any other observations or comments? About any? <clears throat> All right, let's uh, close in prayer.